Going through the Gospel of Matthew now, and uh, several months ago I got kind of excited because we we're going to be breaking ground on chapter 24, and I thought, gee, just four more chapters will be done by Easter. Not going to happen. A lot of stuff in these, four, these, these two chapters that, that's, that we find ourselves in, Matthew 24 and 25, and it's known as the Olivet Discourse. Commonly, and it's the time when Jesus left Jerusalem. He went over through the uh, Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. There's just uh, 13 of them, and he's sharing with them a message about his second coming. When is he coming back? And the disciples asked him a question in verse 3, and their question is basically, when is all this going to happen? When are these things going to take place? And what are those things? Well, the destruction of Jerusalem the destruction of the temple, the coming Messiah in his kingdom. And the disciples wanted to know when this was going to happen. Uh, What is the sign of these events taking place? What is the sign of the end of the age? And in answer to that one question, Jesus goes on for basically two chapters. And that's what he does. He answers their question in chapters uh, 24, verse 4, all the way through 25. It's one of the longest answers in Scripture that Jesus ever gave to a single question. And so you can kind of see how it's, it's, it's a little overwhelming even to teach this stuff because it, there's so much involved. You're talking about not things that have already happened, factual events. You're talking about things that are factual, but they're in the future. And so a lot of times we can't necessarily be very dogmatic on some of these things because they haven't taken place yet. But Scripture does give us a very, very clear indication of what's coming around the bend, what's coming down the road. He tells them that his coming is in the future because they didn't understand that. They thought it was going to happen just in one coming. The Old Testament prophets and the disciples and the the Jews of Jesus' day thought, yeah, the Messiah is going to come, but he's just going to come once. And they overlooked the whole You see there in your bulletin the little diagram. They overlooked that whole church age in which we live now that started with Jesus Christ coming to earth the first time in the incarnation. And as he was born and lived for 33-some years, and then he went back to be with his Father in heaven after he was uh, hung on the cross. He died. The Scripture says that he was buried, and three days later he rose from the grave. And as he rose from the grave, he uh, went back to heaven. That's the ascension of Christ. But with that, the beginning of the church age started when the church was begun at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit no longer just came and and, uh, um, came upon certain individuals, but actually indwelt them. And we don't know how long that church age is because it ends with the rapture of the church, the catching away of those who know Christ. And when that takes place, that begins a seven-year period called the tribulation. It's broken into two segments, three and a half years, divided by one who's going to be raised up called the Antichrist, and he's going to basically turn the, the tables on everybody. Everybody's going to look to him for peace, and he's going to promise peace, and that's what's going to get him into power. But once he gets into power, he's going to go in and desecrate the temple and basically turn his wrath upon God's people and those who are trusting in Christ. And mass slaughters will happen. That'll begin after three and a half years, right in the center of that tribulation period. 
And what closes that tribulation period off at the end, how do you know it's seven years? Well, it says that Jesus' second coming when he comes back to earth. See, in the rapture, he just comes in the clouds, the Bible says, and we're caught up to be with him. But the second coming is when he actually touches his feet down on the Mount of Olives. He comes back once again, just like he did in his incarnation. But the problem was the Old Testament prophets and the disciples didn't see anything about this. They, they just thought, oh, he's coming all at once. So they were asking him questions. Well, when are these things going to take place? And their answer in their head was, it's probably going to happen next Tuesday or next Wednesday or next Friday. Or is it going to be a month from now? Well, we know it's going to be quick. Because John the Baptist has heralded you as the Messiah. We've seen you do all these works and wonders in our presence. We know you're the Messiah. Now, when are we going to overturn Rome and free the God's people from all this burden that they've had upon them? And see, that's why the disciples were kind of mixed up when Christ went to the cross and died. They thought, wait a minute, this isn't in the plan. How can this happen? They didn't see the whole picture yet. And so what Matthew does... Jesus does in the book of Matthew here, as it's recorded by Matthew, is he takes us from the present time there with his disciples 2,000 some years ago, and he sweeps them right into the center of the tribulation. And so that's what he's describing, events in that tribulation period. The second half of that tribulation period is called the Great Tribulation, because it's even going to be worse than the first. But the church age, they did not know. That's why... Paul calls it a mystery. They didn't understand that. And so we've been going through this, and it, it says that there are certain, in verse 8, it says this is the beginning of birth pains. Just like a mother who's having a child hours before that baby is actually born, they begin to have pain. They begin to have birth pains, and those pains intensify some of you ladies are looking at me like, yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot more than an hour, pal. Okay, I understand that, but it's just an illustration. Okay, eight hours, nine hours, 24, whatever it's been for you. Okay, but those birth pains intensify until that child is ushered into the world and born. And see, he's using that illustration for the Jewish people, and they totally understood that. They always reminded themselves that the coming of the Messiah was going to be preceded by birth pains. They totally got that picture. They understood it. Edersheim makes that very clear to us in some of his writings, talking about the Jewish culture and their mindset. He says, no, they totally got what Jesus was saying here. And so we saw, as we've been going through these birth pains, we saw, first of all, there was widespread deception. Widespread deception in verses 4 and 5. It says, no, beware, don't let anybody lead you astray, he says. In other words, keep your eyes open, Jesus says in verse 4. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And that's going to happen. And you say, well, who is he writing to here in, in this? He keeps on saying, you, you, you. Is he talking to the disciples? Well, he's talking to the disciples, but he's referring to a group of, of people in Judea who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he points that out, that there's going to come a time in Judea, in Israel, when those who persecuted Christ, when those who, who executed him, now they're going to love him. Their hate for Christ is going to turn into uh, intense love for him. And as a result of that, the Antichrist is going to turn his wrath on those believing Jews. And so he's warning them. He's saying, don't be deceived. During that time, during the tribulation, the church isn't going to be here. We're going to be caught away. We're going to be caught up. Those who have trusted in Christ. 
But it says that many will come in my name. I am the Christ. That's what they will say. And you think we have people who call themselves Christ now. We, you think you have people that call themselves the Messiah now. We do. But it's going to be a hundredfold times more during this time. And out of all those people, there's going to rise up one that's the Antichrist. And he's going to be able to woo people with the, the element of peace that he brings to the table. Because everybody's going to be clamoring for peace. Because all these things are going to start to happen in the first half of the tribulation. There's going to be widespread deception. The second one was political and military disputes. We see that in verses 6 and 7. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, and that idea is that you're going to continue to hear about it. It's not just going to be, oh, there's a war over in the Middle East, or there's a war over there. No, it's everyday events, constantly, wars, wars, and rumors of wars. All these disputes are going to be going on. Even after one-fourth, the Bible says, of the world is massacred, literally slaughtered in a holocaust of war, Another third is massacred on top of that. I mean, you're you're talking in excess of billions of people here. And yet, still, at that point in time, there's still some men who would not repent. They will not turn to God. Amazing. Widespread deception. All these disputes going on. Serious disasters occurring all over the place. Look at verse 7. It says, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then it says there will be famine, there will be earthquakes in various places. There's going to be economic crisis like the world has never known. You think the economy's bad now. You think $5 for a, a gallon of gasoline is bad. That's nothing in comparison to what is to come. You think the physical conditions here on earth are bad. It's nothing in view of what's down the pike. There's going to be geographical catastrophes happening at unexpected places. Remember, this is all future that word there he uses for earthquakes is seismos. That's, you know, we get the, the, the idea of what they, they, the uh, instrument they use to uh, record earthquakes with. Same, same kind of word. The earth is going to be shaken. Mark, in chapter 13, verse 8, and also over in Luke, adds the word pestilences, their accounts. It also adds fearful sights and great signs from heaven. This is going to be something the world has never seen before. Now, Matthew didn't include the pestilences and the signs from heaven. But you know what? You put those all together. And you know what? If you're here, you're going to be in a world of hurt. That's going to mark the end times. See, you have to understand, the Lord right now, the age in which we live, the church age, God is restraining sin. He's restraining it through the power of the church, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in believers here on earth. But there's going to come a day when Christ comes back for his church and the church will be literally ushered out of the earth. And the restraint will no longer be here. And sin will just be able to run wild. You think it's bad now. It's nothing compared to what's going to happen. When he takes that restraining back, he removes that restraint through the rapture of the church, the church is taken out. All these horrible things are going to happen because God is then pouring out his wrath, his judgment on an unbelieving world. And that's the tribulation time. We're off the face of the earth. First Thessalonians says God takes back the restraint and everything just begins to disintegrate. The created earth can't support the evil of the people that it contains. 
when evil is unrestrained. You think it's bad today. Boy, nothing compared to what is coming. And everything in the universe basically begins to deteriorate and, and break apart. The world begins to crumble. At that point, Revelation chapter 9 says that hell opens up and Satan lets loose demons, spiritual beings. And they begin to multiply the demonic population that's already present here. And God allows these beings to do signs and wonders to deceive the world, to capture the minds of the world as sin runs rampant. Now, last week we talked about the seal judgments of Revelation chapter 6. And we went through those. Well, I want you this morning to understand, turn over to Revelation chapter 8, because I want you to get, remember, out of those seal judgments, the seventh seal judgment, it kind of opens up a whole other uh, box, you might say, of judgments. And those judgments are called the seven trumpet judgments. And then, out of the seventh trumpet judgment, there's a whole other box of judgments opened out on the earth called the seven uh, vile or seven bull judgments. And so you have this, this judgment from God constantly increasing as it grows closer to the conclusion of this seven-year period on earth. You're moving a little closer toward the end time at each point. Just look at some of the things here that are going to be happening with these seven judgments. We looked at the, the seven seal judgments last week, but look at verse 6 of Revelation 8. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and then followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And the third of the earth, listen to this, was burned up. The third of the trees... All the grass was burned up. Now you stop and you think of something like that. You think of the impact of wildfires today on certain communities and things like that. That's nothing compared to what this is going to happen, what's going to happen during this time. Verse verse 8 says, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Scientists tell us that one day there could be meteors that impact the ocean seas with such a force that it actually disrupts the whole climatic earth, the atmosphere. It says a third, as a result of that, look at the results in verse 9, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, fish, all those things that live in the sea. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Think how much we use shipping for delivering food and, and uh, supplies, things like that. Navy vessels, whatever it might be. They're all destroyed as a result of this. A third of them are. Number 10, or verse 10, it says, A third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. Kind of sounds like a meteor or something, asteroid, something. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. In other words, they were polluted, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. We're only at the third trumpet here, beloved. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. 
Think what that's going to do to crops. Think that what that's going to do to just fear. And a third of the night. And he saw an eagle and it says, Whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. In other words, this is nothing. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1, and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened up the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the shaft came locusts on the earth, and they were given the power like the power of scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. That's what the locusts usually do. Nope, not this time. They harmed those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads, the unbelievers. It says they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. I mean, it sounds horrific. And it goes on, and it kind of explains what goes on there. Jump all the way down to verse 13. It says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour and the day, the month and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. This is another third on top of those who have already died, beloved. Through plagues and, and, and whatnot. And then the seventh seal, basically, when that is opened, if you go over to Revelation chapter 7, like I said, that opens up seven more bowls of judgment of God's wrath. Chapter 16, verse 1, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Chapter 16, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And look at what happens. Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. See, Christ, the Antichrist is being risen up in the middle of this tribulation. He's going to demand that everybody bow down and worship him because he's claiming himself to be Christ. He's claiming himself to be Messiah. If you do not bow down to him, you will lose your life. says, the second angel, so they have these sores, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died. Not just a third, everything in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs, and they became blood. The fourth angel, down at verse 8, poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Do you see the hardness of their heart, beloved? They're still not willing to repent. They're still not willing to cry out to a God of grace and mercy as he pours out his wrath on an unbelieving world. It says, they did not repent and give him glory. So the fifth angel, verse 10, chapter 16, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast in its kingdom, 
was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth a dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They were demonic spirits performing signs and wonders. And they go and they assemble for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake. Keep his, his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then the seventh bull you read there. I mean, this is, this is a time in history that the world has never, ever ever known. And you say, well, is this stuff really going to happen? Yes, it is. It really is going to take place, beloved. One day, these things will take place. Just like Jesus, when he answered their question, when they were looking, leaving the temple, and he told them, you know what? All these rocks you see around you, all these huge huge uh, edifices and everything, all this is going to be devastated one day. It's going to be brought down. There's not even going to be one stone upon another. That happened, beloved, in 70 AD when the Romans went in and basically overturned everything in Jerusalem, including the temple. That's a, that's a factual thing. You can go to history, not even church history, not even biblical history. You can go to secular history and find out that fact on your own. And Jesus prophesied that years before it happened. And it took place, just like he said. This is the same Christ that said, yeah, I'm going to die on a cross. But you know what? In three days, I'm going to come back. And you know what? He did. He's a man of his word. He's a God who does not lie. And so when Jesus says something, you better bet it's going to happen. Don't, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the deception. That, oh, this is just this is too, too much to believe. You know what? If I would have told you years ago that the Berlin Wall is going to fall, there's a time in history when you would have looked at me and said, you're crazy. That's never going to happen. Or the Soviet Union's going to basically go downhill. You'd say, no way. But all those things happened. See, it's important for us to understand that the world is changing right before our eyes. Just open your newspaper. Everything is changing. And as it changes, God is preparing the way for his son and his second coming. See, we live in the time of grace right now. We live in the age where you can respond to Christ as the Savior. There's going to come a time when he comes back at the end of this tribulation period, when he's going to rule and reign, and there'll be no opportunity for that grace. We need to remember that this is the time to respond to his call of salvation upon your hearts. That all brings us up to verse 9, back in Matthew 24. 
kind of brings us current to where we're gonna, what we're going to look at today. And so I want to read for us Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14. Because those are the things that some of the people who are going to be part of that tribulation, those who haven't trusted in Christ, those who aren't taken away when he comes back, who are ushered into that tribulation period, have to look forward to. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be part of that, that's for sure. That's why we look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church. That's our hope. He's our deliverer. We're not appointed unto wrath as his children. But look at what it says in Matthew 24, verse 9. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Remember who the you is, those who are believing in the Messiah during the tribulation time. They'll deliver you up to tribulation and they'll put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets, not false Christ, but false prophets, those who teach, will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, praise God, will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come pretty clear indication of what's going to be taking place. I want to look at today the predictions that clearly point to his return, the predictions, not just these birth pains, but actual predictions that Christ made in his answer. And we see him there in verses 9 through 12. 9 to 10, it says that there'll be some kind of an emotional change toward the people of God, toward the people of Israel even. Toward the nation of Israel. There will be an emotional change. Up to this point, the Antichrist is going to kind of say, okay, go ahead, do your temple stuff and everything. But at this point on, he goes into the temple, he desecrates the temple, and he declares himself to be God. And he says, you either worship me, or that's it. And so you have both Jewish and Gentile believers during this time. Because the message of the gospel, God's grace during the tribulation period is still being extended to sinful men, even though he's judging the unbelieving earth. There's still opportunities to follow the Messiah. But all of a sudden, this emotional change happens. Over in Mark chapter 13, verses 9 to 13, it says there, Be on your guard. Mark 13, 9 to 13. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. Verse 10 says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand. But you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and the children will rise against the parents and have them put to death. This isn't just some simple little rebellion. You're talking about a spiritual rebellion against a holy God. Against all those who stand with Christ. doesn't matter whether you're part of the family or not. And it says, And you will be hated for all by all, for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
And you say, well, where do these believers come from if the church has been raptured? You just said that the church was taken out of here, and then the seven years begins. Where do these people come from? When the church has been raptured, God sets loose, the Bible tells us, two witnesses over in Revelation 11. And they go everywhere proclaiming the truth. They proclaim the gospel of Christ. And it says that they are murdered by the world. But they will rise from the dead. And it's, it's going to be a miracle of miracles. It's actually going to be seen, I think, via television all over the world. These two witnesses of God will be actually murdered in the street. Their bodies will lie there. And then they'll be risen from the dead. And they'll have an impact on winning some to Christ during that time. And there'll be people who come to the Savior during that period of time. But now they don't live in the age of grace anymore. As we know it. We don't suffer persecution in this country as they do in some countries. But even in the countries where they suffer persecution today, it's nothing like what's going to happen during the tribulation time. I mean, there are countries, beloved, today, even today, where Christians are being slaughtered because of their faith, because of their trust in Christ as the Messiah. There are pastors who are being thrown into prison because they're teaching the truth. That's nothing in comparison to what's going to be happening during this time. There will be people who come to the Savior during the tribulation period. And they will be the objects of persecution, the Bible says. Not only by the world, but even by the Jews as well, because some of those, it says there, that in the synagogues you'll be delivered over to be beaten. So even though mass amounts of Jewish people are turning to faith in Christ and they're being born again and they're, they're, they're adhering to the, the teachings of the Messiah, there's still some that are rebellious among them. Just as in the Gentile world, there's going to be Gentiles who come to Christ during this time. And yet there's going to be some who continue to rebel. And the the rebels of that time are going to be persecuting the true believers, the true followers of Christ. It's going to be a horrible time of persecution and martyrdom. It says in verse 9, they will kill you. They will deliver you up. That word deliver you up has the idea of being arrested. You're going to be arrested for your faith. And it's going to even happen within the family unit. Doesn't matter whether it's your husband or your wife. Doesn't matter if it's your child. If you're buying into the Antichrist deception and you're, you're adhering allegiance to him, if someone doesn't do that in your family, you're going to actually turn that person over to, to be killed. That's the deception that's going to be going on during this time. Horrible, horrible things will be happening on planet Earth. And why does all this happen? He says, because of my name. That's the issue. They hate Christ. These people who are being rebellious, even in the midst of all this wrath of God that's being poured out. Still, they hold on to their sin. They still hold on to their independence. They still hold on. They won't give in to a sovereign, holy God. That's the issue. 
in John or in Revelation chapter six and also in chapter seven, John has a vision and he sees great multitudes, which no man could number of the nations and kindreds of people and tongues, and they're standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, and they're clothed, it says, with white robes and palms in their hands, and they're crying out and they're saying, Salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And he sees these people. Well, who are these people? Verse 14 of Revelation chapter 7 tells us. He says, these are those that came out of the great tribulation. See, once you go in through the tribulation, you can come out as a believer, but it's going to be by death, more than likely. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be executed for your faith. It says, having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 11 tells us about the two witnesses. Revelation chapter 12 tells us and says that the dragon Satan makes war with the remnant of the sea. That, what that means is it's talking about believing people during that time. Probably Jewish believers. And he literally makes war with them. Revelation 13 verse 7 says that power is given on to him to kill and he makes war with the saints and overcomes the saints. The Antichrist, the false prophet. Revelation chapter 17 says that this great harlot, this great prostitute, what it's talking about is this false religious system of the tribulation. All this selfish worship that's going on by the Antichrist. It says it's drunk with the blood of the saints. In other words, they've, they've slaughtered so many of those who follow Christ. They're drunk on their blood. How did they get out of the tribulation, those believers? They were martyred. They were killed for the sake of the Savior because of their commitment to Him. That emotional change is going to happen. We see it changing even now, don't we? Do you know there used to be a time in America where being a Christian was a good thing? <laughs> where being longing to a church, that the church was the hub of the community? If you had a community meeting, where did you have it? You had it at the church, at the fellowship hall. But unfortunately, the church has been replaced. So now instead of being the hub of the community, it's just one of the spokes on the wheel. And I'll even go as far as to say, even within Christendom, even within believers, I'll tell you, you know what? The church is just one of the spokes on the wheel in their life. And what has replaced the center, and it may sound honorable, it may sound good, but it's not right. What's replaced in most Christian circles, that hub that used to be the church, it's the family. The family. You say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, hey, I'm all for family values. Don't get me wrong. The last time I checked my Bible, Jesus said, you know what? Your love for your family should seem as hate in relationship to your love and commitment to me. He's not telling you to hate your family, but he's saying in comparison, if you were to compare the love for your wife and your children and your family members, Jesus is saying in comparison, your love for me should be so much greater. Your commitment to me should be so much greater that it almost seems like by worldly standards, you hate your family. That's a devastating truth to the church of Christ today. 
And I see it all over the place. Well-meaning Christians have replaced the hub of their life with the family unit. And Christ in the church is just one of those spokes on the wheel of life, and they check it off as they go through the, the week. Yep, going to church, going to Wednesday night, going. Think about the New Testament church, beloved. You, you want to know what it looked like in the New Testament? I mean, it says they went house to house. They ate meals together. They prayed together. They shared communion together almost on a, a daily basis. They were under the apostles' teaching and doctrine. They were together. They, were, they, were, they, they loved being together. And the only place you see that today is in some countries where Christians are persecuted. You see certain places of the world where their Sunday pales in comparison to ours. They rise early because they have to travel a distance to go to a church. And when they get there, they're not just there one or two hours. They're there all day. They eat together. Then they come back in the afternoon and they'll have another session in God's Word. And then they'll go eat again. They'll come back in the evening. And you say, well, that's, that's just too much. That's my point. <laughs> We've allowed all these other things to crowd into our lives. Including our commitment to certain things that are good things. I'm just trying to be real with you. We, we have to be serious about our commitment to Christ. Because these emotional changes are going to happen during that time. And when they do, a lot of people aren't going to be able to hold on. Because they don't have Christ. They don't have the church as their hub. It's just one of the spokes. One of the things they do in life. They go to work. They go to church. So forth. That's the first thing. Secondly, there's going to be religious counterfeits. Verse 11 there. Matthew 24, it says not only will people rise up against each other and and actually kill one another, they'll hate one another for his namesake, but it says many false prophets, these are teachers, will arise and lead many astray. And you say, well, all you got to do is turn on the TV today and you see a lot of false teachers on there. Yeah, you do. But you don't see nothing compared to what's going to come. That pales in comparison, beloved. They were going to have a, these people are going to have a great influence over a majority of people during this tribulation time. They're just going to buy, buy it hook, line, and sinker, and they're going to be deceived. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Also in 1 John 4, 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits and see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Today, I would encourage you, don't take someone's word for what they're saying. Don't sit there and say, well, I guess he said this is going to... Read it. You have a copy of God's word. Hopefully, if you don't see me after the service, I'll get you a copy. You can take this book for yourself, ask God for wisdom, and begin to read it, and begin to see the same things I'm seeing. I don't have a corner on the truth. We're all charged to study to show ourselves approved. So we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I think somehow most Christians have checked that out. Checked out of that kind of idea. 
No, I just come to church. Hopefully you got a good sermon, pastor, so you can give me another shot in the arms. Maybe I'll make it through Friday this next coming week. Beloved, I'm the first one to tell you, okay? If, you're, if all you're getting on a weekly basis is what I'm doing here on Sunday morning, you don't have a chance in the world in which we live. You don't, have a, you don't stand a chance up against all the distractions, all the sin, all the temptation. See, we're called to be Bereans. We're called to study this book for ourselves. We need to do that on a daily basis. So that you know when I'm up here teaching that you see, yes, amen, these things are true. That's how it should be. It shouldn't be you come here and hopefully going to get informed by something I say. All I'm doing is I'm repeating back to you what I'm reading. Most of what I'm saying is scripture verses. Somebody told me one time, you know, when you preach, basically you just say a lot of scripture. Well, yeah, I think that's the smartest thing to do. Because God promises his word will not return void. I don't see anywhere a promise on Steve's word. Last time I checked. I can give you my opinion, but who cares about my opinion? Amen? It's about what God says. It's about his word. And we need to kind of reactivate that, that appetite that we need to have, that we're supposed to have for Christ. I mean, the average church, it's, it's sad. Because that appetite has left. I mean, if you can get people to church on Sunday, man, you're doing, you're doing pretty good here in California. If they come out for a Wednesday night study, wow, you're really doing good. But don't even think about a Sunday night service. Don't even think about doing something else. Because you know what? We're just too busy. The scary times we live in, religious counterfeits are going to come up and they're going to deceive many because they're not grounded themselves in the Word of God. All I can do is do the best I can to communicate to you the truth that God has shown me in His Word. You have the same truth. Study it. Begin to read this week the rest of chapter 24 and 25 and say, where's he going to go with this? And begin to understand the Word of God for yourselves. Next, moral chaos. Verse 12 says, and because lawlessness will be increased, lawlessness will be increased. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 says, iniquity shall abound. Iniquity shall abound in these times. I mean, we think our world is, is bad today. And I keep saying this, but we, we need a form of reference, okay? It's going to be nothing in comparison to what's coming down the road. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Boy, we have that today, don't we? We know how to put the appearance of godliness on, don't we? How are you doing? How are you? Oh, it's good, brother. It's good. God's blessing you. When inside, you know what, our heart's breaking, but we can't be transparent because, you know, what would people think if we were really honest about 
where we were in our spiritual walk or what's really troubling us in our heart. So we put up a big facade. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What's he say? Avoid such people. Avoid such people. That lawlessness is going to abound. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Because sin is lawlessness. This, this, the moral compass is going to come off, it's off the axle. It's just going to go crazy during this time. There will not only be moral chaos, but there's also going to be spiritual complacency. It says there in verse 12, after it says that this lawlessness will increase, it says the love of many will what? What's it say? Grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. They're going to be indifferent to the main priority. They're going to be indifferent to it. And you say, well, what is that? You know what? Revelation tells us because he took the time to write to churches. Remember, we did a little outline last week of Revelation. And we said the first couple chapters deal with letters that Christ wrote to these churches. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, he's writing a letter to the church of Ephesus. And here's what he says, I know your works, your toil, your patience, endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found, out to be, found them out to be false. Verse 3 says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Sounds pretty good so far. Verse 4, uh-oh, but I have this against you. Here it comes, that you have what? Abandoned the love that you had at first. You lost your first love. If you're a believer here today, go back with me on the day that you came to Christ, the day that God unveiled your blind eyes to see the depth of your sin before a holy God, and you cried out to Him, God, please be merciful, save me. Save me from my sin. And God did that and he transformed your heart and all of a sudden you had an appetite for God's word. You had a desire to pray. You wanted to fellowship with other believers. To the point where other people maybe looked at you and said, yeah, you're a little weird. What happened to you? You remember those days? What happened to those days? What happened to those days? Has your love grown cold? Has your heart grown indifferent to the main priority? Have you abandoned the love that you first had when you came to Christ? God forbid. I trust that's not true. But that's easy to happen. They're indifferent to the main priority. They're also indifferent to their own need. Another letter in Revelation chapter 3. Letter to Laodicea. In verse 15. Here's what he writes to this poor church. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, that you are pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve that anoints your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And listen to this. He says there in verse 20, he's writing this to a church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Spiritual complacency has caused us to be indifferent to the main priority of our love for Christ. And also, we've lost track. We've become indifferent even to our own need because we're so self-sufficient in the day and age in which we live. I've even talked to believers who say, oh, you know, I, I don't go to church. It gets too uh, just troublesome, you know, a lot of things go on in church. I just don't like that. I, I just stay at home, and I have my Bible, and I have my Internet preacher, and I just, you know, I study the Word, and I watch him on TV, or watch him on the computer, or listen to tapes, and, you know, I don't get involved in the fellowship, because that gets a little sticky sometimes, and I don't, I don't like that. Makes me feel uncomfortable. We've got to be careful. We need this fellowship. God says we need, we, we should desire to be with one another. Not just once a week, beloved, almost on a daily basis. How far we've come from that. We have so many other things. Our lives are so busy. So busy. We can fill in that gap with anything. But if it's not Christ, if it's not His Word, if it's not being stricken to the heart with the lost and dying world in which we're, we're called to, to go out and share the gospel with. So many times there's so many people in the church that got so many issues. Man, even if they did go out and, and share the gospel, people look at them and say, yeah, right, yeah, I really want your Jesus. Look at your life. I don't think so, pal. See, we have to make sure that our lives measure up to what our lips are saying. Not that we're perfect. We're not. Trust. None of us are. We have a long way to go. But by the grace of God, I pray that our desire is to live lives that are honoring to him and to go out into this lost and dying world and take the truth of the gospel and see him use it in lives to transform them, cause repentance to happen and see salvation take place. See, this pressure is so great as this world during that tribulation period that the, these massacre of believers that's going on during that, that period, the great tribulation, it really causes some who are maybe mouthing the words, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, look at me, look at me. But when the slaughter starts to come, all of a sudden, wow, they, they, they take a second step back, and they say, hey, wait a minute here. I I don't know if uh, I want to go down this road. You mean if I continue to trust in Jesus, I'm going to get my head cut off? Or I'm going to be persecuted in some way? Or I'm going to be executed in some way? Uh, I didn't sign up for that. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead and put put that seal right here on my head, Antichrist. That's good. I don't want to go like them. 
That's what's going to happen to people during this time. The pressure is going to be so great that they're going to have this superficial identity with Christ. And it's going to be just like the seed that fell on, on thorny ground. It doesn't have any root. Pops up, maybe it looks good to start with. We've all seen that in people. They make a profession of faith. But when they see the price that needs to be paid, it says they're scandalized, they're offended because of the truth. And they will actually get to the point, as we read earlier, they'll betray other believers to the Antichrist, even within families. Don't allow that spiritual complacency to overtake your life. Be diligent in your study of the Word of God. The last point here, the promises that encourage those that are living in this last time. Look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. What's that mean? Well, the perseverance of the saints. See, I don't necessarily adhere to the idea, once saved, always saved. You've heard that. You know, well, once you're saved, you're always saved. Do you ever hear people say that? Once saved, always saved. I think that cheapens it. I just think it cheapens it. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that those who come to Christ, that, that, that acknowledge their sin and repent and embrace the Savior, and He puts that deposit of the Holy Spirit in their life, and He saves them, He, trans, he transforms their lives. That they're not subjects of wrath. They're not going to have to endure the wrath of God because they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And as a result of that, they will persevere to the end. It's not saying if you can just hold out in your unbelief till the end, then somehow God's going to grant a special grace to you and you're going to be saved even though you don't follow Him. No, He's not saying that. He's saying those who are trusting in Christ during this time will persevere until the end and you're going to be saved. The same is the overcomers in 1 John 5. 1 John 5 is a, is, a, is, a, is a wonderful verse. I think it's 4 and 5. says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the person that's going to endure to the end. That's the one who's going to persevere. That's the one who's going to make it across that line. You say, well... How about these people, their, their love grows cold. Are they actual believers? Of course they're not believers. There are people who look like believers. There's people who maybe say they believe. The church is full of people like this today. If they were real believers, then they would continue in the truth, right? If they were real believers, then they would give their life, if need be, for the Savior. If they were real believers, they'd follow in acts of obedience the Savior. See, today we're quick to use this grace that we live in, and we say, oh, well, basically the grace covers everything. So then we have someone who says, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Great. How are things going in your home? Well, you know, I'm having an affair with the neighbor, and I'm leaving my wife, and, you know, my kids are kind of messed up, and, and, you know, a lot of the bad things are happening in my own life. But I trust Jesus. No, you don't. No, you don't. There's no, that's not transformation. That's not salvation. 
Show me in the Bible one instance where someone came to Christ and was saved and they went and continued to live the life that they used to live. There's not one, beloved. John said in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you're my real disciple. Very clear. 1 John 2, 19 tells us they went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, they used to be, but they weren't really part of us. They were just here. They were present. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. The true disciple is willing to suffer like his master suffered. That's what Jesus says. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest, you be in any, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The Lord says, Whoever therefore confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is heaven, who is in heaven. And he also said this, he that takes not his cross, an instrument of death, beloved, and follows after me, Jesus said, you're not worthy to follow me. The person who says, you know what, I don't, I, don't, I don't want the cross. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. I just want to be happy in Jesus. Jesus is saying that person is not worthy to be my disciple. That person is not even worthy to belong to Christ. But you know what, the person who belongs to Christ continues. The person who belongs to Christ is willing to pay the price. Not because of something within him. He doesn't have some special character. They're not some special person. But if they're a true believer, the Holy Spirit grants him that sustaining grace that he grants every one of us. That's the key. Are you persevering in your faith? I pray your love for the Savior has not grown cold. Last point, and then we'll close. The preaching of the gospel, verse 14. Remember, this is during the tribulation period. It says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, then, God's going to leave out one more more opportunity, just like he did with Judas. Think about it. Judas spent time with Christ all that time before Calvary. And right up until... Then the night of his betrayal, Jesus is still extending his hand out to Judas, who he knew was going to betray him. But he still was giving him an opportunity to put his faith, his trust in Christ and be saved. That's the kind of God we serve. A lot of people, hear a lot of people in the last couple of weeks talking about Whitney Houston and her life. And boy, you know, do you think she was a Christian or not? I don't know not my call to make what kind of person would i be if i said oh yeah she was definitely a christian or she i don't know i don't know what's in her heart i know she's heard the truth and again you look at her life it definitely wasn't a god-honoring life she lived it was a life filled with sin and abuse and it ended in a tragic death but you know what then i remember the thief on the cross 
He was on the cross next to Christ, hanging there for a crime that he had committed. And he cried out to Christ for his mercy and grace. And Jesus turned to him and said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. This guy wasn't a church attender. He didn't get baptized, nothing. But his faith was a simple trust in the goodness of God. As God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, hung next to him on that cross. And he was granted salvation. I'm always careful at funerals never to preach that person into heaven, nor condemn that person to hell, because I don't know. I don't know what's in a person's heart. We can go by what we see sometimes in people's lives, but that's not for our call to make. That's not our call to make. But there's going to be a time when the gospel, at the very last moment, goes out. Revelation 14, 6 and 7 says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. This is at the end of everything almost. To every nation and tribe and language and people. There are mission groups today that are trying to translate. You think of the kennels. They're trying to translate the Bible so they can get the truth of the Word of God into the hands of the, of the tribes down there in Papua New Guinea and in Brazil and other parts of the world. Hey, great effort. That's wonderful. We need to do that. But you know what? There's going to come a time when God does that for us. Verse 7, it said there, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Second Peter 3, 8, 9 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. What's that saying? God transcends time. He's not limited to our 24-hour period of time. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I trust today that you're open to that call of God upon your life, that you're willing to look at the holiness of God and the wretchedness of your own sin. And bow your knee to a life-transforming, loving, life-giving Savior. Father, we thank you for the word today. Lord, we, I don't know about others, but I'm, I'm definitely thankful that I'm not going to be here when all these things go down here on earth according to how I read the, the scriptures. I believe you'll come back for your church to take us out of here. But Lord, my heart breaks for those who may be left. For those who may endure the hardship of this tribulation time, this time when you're pouring out your wrath on the unbelieving earth. And Father, I pray for each soul that's here today. Lord, today is the day of salvation. The word of God proclaims that. You may not have another day. We don't know what, what tomorrow holds. We don't even know what the, the rest of the day holds. We could go out of here, be getting in our car and be hit by a truck and be dead. Lord, you've counted our days. You haven't allowed that information to pass into our minds. So we don't know when that time will come for us to be ushered into eternity. But Lord, we do know the truth of your word says that in that eternity there are two places. 
One is heaven, which is a presence continually with you in a glorified state, in a place where knows not sin, sadness, or tears, only rejoicing and praising of God. And the way to get there is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you're not believing in Christ here this morning, I pray, I beg of you to cry out to him for mercy. Put your faith, your trust in him. Acknowledge your sin before a holy God. You don't have to have all the facts. You don't have to know the Bible cover to cover. That's the dynamic of saving grace. He's the one who saves you. You don't save yourself. You're not saved by a church. You're not saved by doing something. You're saved by crying out to Him for salvation. Because that other place, not heaven but hell, is a place you don't want to go to. Trust me. It's a place of eternal torment. It's a place totally apart from the presence of God. Totally apart from other beings somehow. It's not a big party where everybody goes who is bad. That's, that's not how the Bible describes this place called hell. But it's only by the grace of Christ that you can go to heaven. I pray that you would cry out to him today. And for us believers that we would recognize that we live in a day and age that's lost and dying quickly on its way to hell and that we should be vigilant in our presentation of the gospel, not just through our lips, but through our lives to a lost and dying world, that they could see the the opportunity that Christ affords them to trust in Him for salvation. Father, we thank You for our time. We pray that You bless the remainder of our day. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.